Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Hi everybody. Hi Dr. Nick. <laughs> oh, it's Dr. Nick here again, reduced to doing his own sting. Uh, welcome to Radiotherapy Live, online and on podcast. Um, and on this beautiful spring Melbourne morning, what better way to continue your Sunday than to keep us company here on Radiotherapy. I'm delighted to be joined again here in the studio by our regular panellist, Miss Diagnosis. How are you? Good morning, Dr. Nick. Uh, very, very well. I mean, what a beautiful day cycling down here, the crisp Melbourne air. It just feels like spring sprung. It's wonderful. And feeling good after your wild grand final day celebrations? Oh, I mean, how could you How could you tell? You know I love the footballs. I know what a keen supporter. <laughs> well, lovely to have you back in the studio. It's also my great privilege to welcome back to the studio orthopaedic surgeon, Dr. Band. Dr. Band, it's not your first time in the Triple R studio, is it? No, it's not. Uh, it's a bit of a return to the station after a few years. I, um, I started with the station maybe... 12 years ago as Whoa. a graveyard um, presenter mm-hmm. and then I've uh, been on radiotherapy a couple of times about five, six years ago. So it's um, been great to come back to the studio and uh, be on your show. So we know we've got misdiagnosis as a junior doctor over at Western Health. Uh, you better tell the listeners what your background is and your experience and why are you Dr. Band? <laughs> okay, so my experience was I um, started off as a physiotherapist and then uh-huh. went back to medical school. Um, and then started my intern and junior years at Western Health um, before going up to Sydney and continuing my my orthopaedic uh, pre-vocational training as an orthopaedic registrar, which is where I'm at at the moment. And is the Dr. Band thing your tribute to your love of music? (laughs) (laughs) In part, in part. Um, So Dr. Band or Bund is the German word for ligament, Um, and I have some... Uh, German background, Northern Italian background, so uh, I thought it was a nice um, dovetail That's to be good. banned on uh, Triple R, of course. As a good Morgan. Yeah, <laughs> good Morgan. <laughs> uh, and a panel beater who's been an indispensable member of the Dr. Nick team since, well, since, well, forever, has finally made the decision to get the occasional Sunday morning lie-in. So, panel beater, I hope you're enjoying a restful Sunday. Thanks for all your amazing insights over the years, not to mention all the twiddling of the knobs and buttons. And talking of which, helping out today, we have the completely wonderful Mr. Tim Thorpe. Round of applause for Tim. <laughs> Uh, right, so on with the show. Dr. Pant, who have you got coming in for us today? Or who have we got you talking to for us today? <laughs> um, I've invited um, one of the head of unit of orthopaedics at Western Health, uh-huh. um, Associate Professor Fong Tran. Uh, he's done some very interesting research with Victoria University about the effect of everyone's waiting um, during the pandemic for elective surgery on their mental health. Um, so some, some really interesting things that we can learn while people are waiting to be seen by their um, orthopaedic surgeons. That's been a huge question, all the waiting lists and what's happened with COVID. So I'd be fascinated. No, someone's actually done some research on that stuff. I'd be fascinated to know what the outcomes of that is. Okay, can't wait for that. That's coming up in the second half of the show, misdiagnosis. You've got a very special guest coming for, up for us as well, haven't you? Yeah, I'm really excited for this one. So I've got uh, Dr. Sonia Srinivasan speaking to us today about abortion 
abortion access, a topic that is uh, very, well, topical at the moment with um, things happening in the US, but also a topic that, you know, as women, we're always very interested in. And we've got Sonia in studio with us. That'll be very exciting. That'll be coming up fairly shortly. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. In the news today, I'm sure all of my doctor people here would be well aware that Friday wasn't just the good final, grand grand final eve, but it was, of course, Restless Legs Awareness Day. Did that pass you by, Miss Diagnosis? Oh, not at all. I mean, you know, you're sitting there watching, your legs are jiggling up and down. I absolutely was aware that it was Restless Legs Awareness Day. (laughs) It does seem a little extraordinary, doesn't it? But um, while it sounds humorous, actually, Restless Legs is a very serious condition for people who suffer from it. In the orthopaedic world, is that something people ever tell you about, Dr. Band? I've not come across it in the orthopaedic world, but maybe they um, are um, restless about not telling us. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's, it's not that uncommon a condition, and um, men and women are affected reasonably equally, and it often comes on in later in life, and it's one of those conditions where people get that incredibly um, irresistible need to move, and it can happen particularly at bedtime, uh, and it's often very disturbing for partners, leads uh, to disrupted sleep with a lot of associations with mental health trouble, depression and so on, and relationship muck-ups. And so while it sounds a little bit of a joke, restless legs is actually a serious condition. Um, So for those who've ever suffered from it, and there are people who have no idea that's actually what they've got, you don't need to suffer in silence. You can jump online, have a look at Restless Legs Awareness Day, (laughs) which was on Friday, um, and learn more about restless legs because there are actually quite good treatments on that misdiagnosis. (laughs) (laughs) You're looking at me like I should know what the treatments are. I actually have no idea, Dr. What kind of treatments are available? Well, funnily enough, when I say they're quite good treatments, they're not that easy because some of the medications used are things like some of the drugs for Parkinson's disease, mm. also some of the opiate medications um, and some of the other um, fairly heavy-duty medications. So the medication treatment isn't easy, but it can actually be very effective. So I don't want people to suffer in silence if that's a, that's a problem they've had. But you're waving at me. It, it sounds like you think you've got something more important than restless well, legs. What could be more important I mean, than we, that? we never line things up in order of importance. Dr. Nick, but the uh, piece of news that, that flashed up onto my news feed, I think late last night sometime, was about this new ruling. Uh, this is another piece of American news. So from Arizona, um, an Arizonan judge has reinstated a strict abortion ban from 1864. So uh, this is in the wake of Roe v. Wade being overturned uh, earlier this year. And essentially, if this uh, legislation is to, to go ahead, um, the abortion ban would be total, not just sort of up to 50 15 weeks, which is what the current Roe v. Wade legislation is um, indicating. It also this this um, uh, this uh, ban from 1864 also saw anyone helping a woman um, to obtain an abortion receive two to ten years imprisonment. Oh my goodness! Yeah, so a um, bit of sort of shocking news coming out of the states, but at the same time, when is there not? Shocking news coming out of the States, so um, not too surprising in some ways, but and, awful. And sorry, I missed the start. Was that, was that in a particular state? Arizona, oh, yeah. Arizona, goodness yeah. gracious. I mean, what are they up to there? Well, I think sometimes we think about it as sort of going back to the dark ages, but I actually don't see it that way. I see it as going forward to a much scarier place because if we think about what was happening in 1864, it wasn't uncommon to have you know, difficult access to abortion. 
in 2022, the idea of moving towards not having access again, I think that's a, a move forward into a place we don't want to go rather than a move back. I mean, we didn't have research back then. We barely had women's rights and we do now. And yet this is still the direction that they're choosing to go. It's a terrifying concept, isn't it? And and what's really terrifying from my perspective is what happens in the States, of course, and filters out across the world, which is, well, I see sitting next to me, Dr. Sonia nodding like crazy, because I think this is what we'll be talking about in our segment coming up fairly soon. So, um, well, thank you for that uh, misdiagnosis. Um, restless legs and Arizona. Oh, my goodness gracious. Well, <laughs> coming up shortly will be our first guest, Dr. Sonia Srinivasan, and she'll be with us in just a This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. This diagnosis, you've got a special guest in the studio for us. I do. Today we're talking with Dr. Sonia Srinivasan, who is a GP registrar yes. in the western suburbs of Melbourne. Oh, it's just going to be a little warm tingle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she's always had a special interest in women's health, with her, opi- uh, with her opinion um, that, we're, that uh, women's health sits at the intersection of medicine, politics and history. So she started her sort of journey into women's health with isolating stem cells from placentae, which is, of course, the plural of placenta, during her <laughs> master's in Auckland, to now uh, understanding how to improve women's access to contraception and abortion in Australia. Welcome, Sonia, on this beautiful spring day. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me and for highlighting that very, oops, sorry, highlighting that very sad update from Arizona. Yeah, it's, it's pretty shocking. Um, well, why don't we start with the obvious here? So what got you interested in women's health and abortion access in particular? Yeah, I think you mentioned a little bit. Um, I've always appreciated that it's this coalescence of kind of the humanities and the sciences together. And um, my mum, I was born in the States, and my mum actually had quite a difficult pregnancy with me um, in Ohio in the 90s. She was monitored for the last trimester of her pregnancy, and then they were sending um, faxes from the trace of me as a baby, (laughs) sending faxes through to the hospital to be analysed. So um, it was a difficult pregnancy and I had sort of grown up hearing about that with my own history and my mum's history. And I pursued that into my master's where I did some interesting fluorescent labelling of stem cells from placenta, which was looking into how to improve um, the management of some pregnancy disorders. But I sort of um, missed talking to patients or wanted to get more of the medical side, and that led me into medicine. And here I am now trying to be a GP that looks after women and all other patients in the best way that we can. Well, I think probably more than just trying to be a GP that looks after me. I, I mean, I, I've known your your medical work previously and, and I can <laughs> testify to your care for your patients. Now, one of the things we were talking about briefly off air before we came in is this idea of why someone might want an abortion. Because there is this sort of idea that it's, you know, it's young women that have gotten pregnant accidentally and then sort of go, oh, I can't, you know, I'm not ready to have this baby. Who is it that actually wants abortions in Australia? Yeah, so certainly young women who have become pregnant accidentally are a large proportion of patients, but actually also um, women who've completed their families who aren't who are currently breastfeeding and not, not ready for another baby or who 
financially don't have the means or for any other reason, women who've had all the children they want and um, don't want to contribute to their family any further are also other people who are seeking abortions. So all sorts of reasons to, um, reasonable reasons to end a pregnancy that we see. And Sonia, can I ask, because um, I've been working in general practice for a long time now, um, it used to be something that quite frequently someone came to me about saying, I'm, I'm pregnant and I'm not sure I want to continue and looking for a referral for consideration of possible termination of pregnancy. I can't think of the last time in the last five or ten years that I've had that consultation. Are they just avoiding me? Do they get? Do they just have to bypass a GP these days? What's happening? Yeah, that's really interesting that you say that because I think something that I wanted to talk about is it can be quite hard to find the information of where to go. Perhaps in the past, people knew that their GP was the first place to go when they're pregnant to get more information. But these days, it can be a little difficult to navigate what the next step is. Um, uh, but the place to start is with your GP. The first thing that we'll do is confirm the pregnancy with a blood test for beta-HCG, which is the pregnancy hormone. And that can tell us how old the pregnancy is and also what options we have for ending the pregnancy. There are medical and surgical options available to us and um, a few different things contribute to making that decision. All right, so let's just say you've had a, a young woman come in or, or you know, a woman of any age come in who's uh, found themselves pregnant. You've, done a, you've confirmed the pregnancy on a blood test. Um, what options are there from the GP clinic itself? You've said medical and surgical. What can be managed from the clinic side and what things need to be referred out? Mm. Yeah, many women will be quite certain about the decision, the way that they want to continue or end their pregnancy. So if they're wanting to end it, the options are medical abortion. And, and those are two tablets that are taken two days apart that effectively induce a miscarriage. And that can be done up to nine weeks of gestation. And it's really important to get accurate dating around that, which is why ultrasound uh, referring for ultrasound is important, and that can be provided by GPs or private clinics like Mari Stopes or Sexual Health Victoria and some public hospitals as well. And um, gestation is one of the reasons that we'll choose medical abortion, but also women's preference. So women who prefer a medical abortion like the flexibility and the privacy to be able to manage that at home. Um, and the other option is surgical. So that's a day procedure with an anaesthetic that can be done in a hospital or a day surgery unit. And that can be done up to 24 weeks in Victoria. So, And, and Dr. Sonny, mm. can I just ask, you said that GPs can provide the mm. medical, the, the medication. Yeah. I don't. I mean, I it? was going to ask you this, Dr. <laughs> Nick. <laughs> very guilty looks over there, Dr. Nick. <laughs> You're scaring me. So in order to, if I uh, correct me if I'm uh, wrong in this, Dr. Sonia, but uh, my understanding is in order to provide the tablets for the medical abortion, GPs have to do a bit of extra training or something called MS2 two-step, two two-step, mm -hmm. yep. um, which is an online training course, um, which I myself have um, started doing uh, anyway, in the even as a hospital doctor, um, to get that qualification to provide that medication. Dr. Nick, have you, have you done this qualification? The only two-step I've done is on the dance floor. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd take that as a no then. <laughs> That's the second most important two-step. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, one of the barriers here is that um, if GPs don't have this qualification, they can't actually provide this medication. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Offering options to help manage a pregnancy that's unintended is a, a 
typical part of GP training curriculum, but the training to do medical abortion is kind of seen as a special interest or an additional requirement. And it would be fantastic if women across Australia could see their usual GP and, and get the medication that they are seeking or that they need. But only 10% of GPs in Australia at the moment have done that additional training. So it would be great. It's been available now for over 10 years. Um, so getting more GPs who are able to provide that would be a great way into the future. Absolutely. Now, the other side of it, this sort of surgical termination, when we're looking at going into a hospital, having a day procedure, anaesthetic, that kind of thing. Now, you've said that um, GPs can refer into hospitals for that. Is that easy? Can you just refer to any hospital? How does that work? <laughs> Definitely some foreshadowing there, misdiagnosis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I've started my GP training now, and so I'm navigating how to get my patients to the right services that they need. And I've, I was really proud to be living in Australia where abortion has been legal um, in all of our states, most recently in South Australia this year. Um, but I've found it more difficult uh, if you're not in a metro area, if you don't have the financial resources, things are generally easier for lots of reasons if you have both of those things. But if you are living a bit further out, you don't have the money to pay for a private service, things are a little more difficult. Not all public hospitals, I'm learning, offer terminations of pregnancy. And even those that do, the, the criteria to accept our referrals are a little bit um, opaque at times. It can be it can be hard to manage as a, a new GP like me. I'm not sure if you've um, encountered those things in the past, Dr Nick. Well, I certainly have. And I was just a bit astonished to hear you say that South Australia only this year, last year, what was that? The yeah. abortion became legal? Sort of um, ended the last kind of remaining criminalising legislation was ended in South Whoa. Australia. The last sort of lingering Arizona-type restrictions. Yeah. And if we talk to our Melbourne audience, and obviously we have triple R listeners all around the globe listening online and so on, but um, majority of people in the Melbourne area, um, what's, the, what's the availability in Victoria? Yeah, so we have our major metro hospitals that provide routine contraception and abortion services. Um, where I'm out in the western suburbs, for most issues like heart failure, appendicitis, colonoscopies, I'll refer my patients to the local public hospital. But I can't do that when patients come to me with an unintended, unintended pregnancy, excuse me. And so it's sort of one of the few medical services that's not universally available with a public health system um, that provides public health for everyone. And it's quite a stark contrast to the UK as well, um, where 99% of abortions are done under the national health system in the public system there. So 99% under the NHS. Because mm. I think the other thing that um, needs to be raised is, you know, both of us have done obstetric rotations. Both of us have seen these procedures. They're not complicated. This is not, you know, a lack of equipment, um, it's a lack of service provision in this particular area. It's not like you need fancy machines for it or people with very, very specialised training and qualification because these procedures, you know, they're relatively simple. Is That's my understanding. Is that Was that your experience as well? I think as well a lot of the procedures are already being done in hospitals for other reasons, just exclusively it seems not for choosing to end a pregnancy. Yeah, mm. So, so the, and I think that's a really important point. This procedure which is a hysteroscopy, dilation and curatage, this procedure is done in the hospitals already. It's being done often every day and yet the hospital or someone has made a choice not to offer this as termination. 
Do you think that there's a, uh, a balance between, you know, the hospitals are very busy already, as we know, um, Sunshine, that, that they can't take on that extra, I mean, in inverted commas, elective load for because they've got to do it within a certain time period as well? Um, or do you think that there's a balance where the public hospitals uh, don't want to enter this kind of political um, area? I mean, it's amazing because they're public hospitals with public money and everyone supports this um, intervention or, you know, health service. But maybe at the executive level they're saying, oh, well, maybe we shouldn't take this on. I would say DNC is probably a bit quicker than labour and delivery, but... That would just be my <laughs> Dr. Sonia, what do you think? Yeah, it's it's there's a few. I think that's a really good point. We know that um, hospitals are really pushed for public services and with waiting times and things, as we'll hear, that's only been made harder with the pandemic. But it's hard to understand what the reasons are. I do wonder about, um, you know, we have some religious hospitals. I wonder if there can be some uh, conscientious objection from an institutional perspective. Although religious institutions, it's not all black and white. I think earlier misdiagnosis we were talking about uh, have a lot of asylum seeker patients who don't have Medicare and often I have to refer them to uh, St Vincent's pathology or other uh, religious pathology providers who will make um, sort of concessions to bulk bill patients in need. So it's not all black and white. I wonder if there's some leftover stigma from recent decriminalisation uh, meaning that institutions are sort of, as you say, Dr. Ban, not not wanting to, or not willing to take part in the services. Not quite sure. Any other thoughts? And, and, well, can I just ask you about waiting times? Because we're familiar with the idea that if you want to get a joint replacement done through the public system, you're probably going to be sitting there until your joints have completely collapsed anyway, because it's going to take a year or two or more. Uh, yet, of course, you can't have a significant waiting time if a woman's seeking termination of pregnancy. Um, so how on earth does a public system that's already stressed and completely behind with all of their routine work, um, how do they manage that? Because that would be a major impediment, wouldn't it? Yeah, it's really time critical. It's one of those um, interesting situations where it's seen as sort of elective, which means that you're choosing to have a procedure that's uh, not necessarily sort of emergency. And at the same time, it's extremely time critical and urgent and delays things like not being able to access an ultrasound in regional areas for weeks. That can drastically change the outcome of the the service that you're trying to seek. So there are lots of um, questions around why it's not offered, but it's interesting looking elsewhere. Um, not By no means am I an expert on this, but Ireland um, recently had a, a couple of years ago a landmark legalisation of abortion and their swift move to make sort of public abortion services accessible has been really amazing to, to learn about. So there's sort of other places, I guess, to look for for, for help, but... I think in an ideal world, abortion would be low-cost, accessible, available, depending on a woman's preference. She could get a medical abortion from her regular GP or a low-cost surgical abortion from a nearby public service, and that would be publicly funded from our public services. That would be the, the services I would love to direct my patients to in the future. And this was something we were talking about off-air, which is sort of what would an ideal system look like? Because sometimes we can get you know, I guess stuck in sort of the whys and the ins and outs of why this isn't happening. And as practitioners rather than people within a medical administration field, it's often it's often really difficult to know, you know, what conversations are happening up the chain, what the services look like. But as we've said, you know, the ideal world would be uh, easily accessible um, and free abortions in whatever manner a woman chooses. What steps do you think we can take to achieving this? Or how do you think we can go about 
actually achieving this? I think there's a few different levels. Um, I think on a personal level for people listening, knowing the resources that are available to find services. So there's a number called 1-800-MY-OPTIONS. They have a really amazing Google-powered map that shows you what services are available in your area, which GPs offer medical abortion, which clinics, private or public, might offer these services. And they also have a phone operator that has amazing amount of detail of what's happening at public services. So I, I believe they can tell you the current waiting times, for example. And um, this is a service that we as GPs also use. So it's, um, it's the one-stop shop, really, to get the information that you need. That would be something that sort of all of us could do to know about that. I'm always thinking about political action, so making um, it known to our local MPs that this public service is a public priority and it's something that we think um, our money should be servicing. Um, and, and also my interest would be increasing the number of GPs who can provide MS two-step or the medical abortion to their regular patients. I, I do want to be a little devil's advocate here because mm. uh, misdiagnosis, you're talking as if the entire world was in full agreement that this should be open access for all mm. women, which of course isn't the case. There will mm. be people listening and there are plenty of people out there for whom this is a matter of real complexity, maybe a matter of faith, it may be a matter of, matter of personal morality. Um, but this isn't something where there's 100% unanimity out in the community. How do we deal with that aspect that there are going to be doctors, there are going to be patients, there are going to be systems which don't agree with this? Mm. Yeah, in Victoria we have something, um, doctors can sort of have a conscientious objection. So if a, if a patient goes to their regular GP and it's at odds with their GP's personal or religious or, or any kind of belief, the, the GP uh, certainly has to make that known but also has to refer the patient to a colleague. I believe it's within 24 to 48 hours so they can access the, um, the health care that they need. And um, that's sort of works okay, I would imagine, in a, in a city where you've got lots of GPs with different interests and different skills. It can be really hard when you're out in rural areas and there's, there are single providers. Um, so, yeah, I completely agree. It's complex. There's not complete agreement and unanimity, but it, it would be um, great to make the pathways clearer so we can get um, everyone the care that they need quickly. And I find this, you know, quite a difficult in some ways thing to talk about some of this ethics of it because obviously for me, you know, as a, well, as a young woman um, and as a strident feminist, I just 100% believe in choice and body autonomy. And I understand that people have different opinions and different, um, you know, sort of religious ideas about this, but I still find it really difficult that someone would advocate to take choice away from women. I think one of the hardest things with this this issue is that it's the same as all of the issues we confront in healthcare. It's that people need some level of health IQ, they call it, to access what they need or want. And I don't think anyone's saying that we're trying to convince someone to have a certain direction with, the, with their health, but certainly have the choice. And there should be a very low hurdle from the time when that woman says, OK, this is where I want to go with my life whether it's having a child or, or not, and getting to the right health services, not, not just the medical stuff but the uh, psychological help too. Um, so I think we could work on that as an industry to, to help that work for all Absolutely. areas of medicine. I, I think that's a really, yeah. really good point that, you know, it's if it's more about providing choice to women, not about 
convincing them to go down one path or another. But I think we can all agree that providing choice is a, a very powerful thing. Um, and it sounds like there are steps that people can take. Are you going to do your MS2 step, Dr Nick? Well, now that I've been alerted to it, um, <laughs> I, yes, I, I, the answer is actually yes, I will, because um, this is one of the huge benefits of radiotherapy and being involved in the show is I learn so much all the time. And here I, yet again, I've learned something new. Um, Dr Sonia, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That's been absolutely fascinating. It's been lovely to have you in the studio. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a great conversation. And I do want to reiterate that uh, people who want information, Dr Sonia did give this telephone number. I'll read it again. This is 1-800-MY-OPTIONS, and that can be used by consumers. It can be used by health practitioners. Anyone uh, can give that number a call if they want some information about what their options might be. That was absolutely fascinating. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Uh, we're very pleased to have Associate Professor Fong Tran, Head of Unit of uh, Western Health um, and uh, Associate Professor of Victoria University, talking um, to us this morning about the effect of on being on an orthopaedic waiting list on your mental health and what what uh, what they found out with some very interesting research that they've done over the last couple of years. Good morning, Prof. Morning, Alex. Morning, Nick. Um, now. Uh, we were having a chat during the week about um, the waiting list and all of the effect that um, these very long elective waiting lists have had on um, the people of, particularly um, in your catchment in the west of Melbourne, um, have had on their musculoskeletal health. But your research sounds like it's um, you found uh, a, a dramatic effect in their mental health as well. Could you um, talk to that? Yeah, absolutely. One of the surprising findings that we looked at is we've known for a long time that uh, musculoskeletal disease has a huge impact on patients. And one of the things that COVID's brought about is an extremely long waiting list. It was long before COVID, but COVID's made it extremely long. But also COVID gave us some real opportunities to partner with Victoria University and look at how we can implement care better for our community. Um, as you may be aware, when you drive over the Westgate Bridge, you can see a magnificent building being built with lots of cranes in the west. And that's the new Footscray Hospital, which will be a tremendous building. But as many buildings as we build, uh, it doesn't meet the need. So we've had to think innovatively about how we can design healthcare using telehealth and online services to implement care before the patient sees specialist services. So during this lockdown, we've actually put a big research team with a big government grant into looking at how we can better serve our community using online and apps. Um, and part of that was looking at what impact the waiting list has had on it. And to our surprise, 30% of our patients were had reached the depression levels when we applied mental health scoring, which is a real surprise to our team. But I suppose in hindsight, you wouldn't see it as a, a surprise, um, knowing the impact of musculoskeletal disease. But to actually have it documented like that has been a tremendous finding, which will certainly help how we design future programs. 
Uh, Fong, can I just ask you, just Dr. Nick here, you say 30% had depression, but the researcher in me says, well, um, what was the control rate for people who have musculoskeletal disease who, um, prior to COVID and with ordinary waiting lists? Do we know it has actually gone up? No, we don't know. That's the thing. It's one of those things that when we do musculoskeletal uh, surveys so we use the patient-reported outcome measures, we normally collect uh, joint-specific outcome scores and also quality of life outcome scores. And it's not something we've ever looked at and it's not something well documented in the literature either is the mental health impact. We know people with sore joints uh, do have mental health impact and not the lack of movement. But the real we... But knowing that it's to this severity uh, has a huge... One of the things, Nick, we've noted in the past is people have surgery. When they come with mental health problems, they end up reporting not great surgical outcomes. So it's a completely new way that we're going to look at how to treat people non-operatively, not not only by asking them to strengthen, use pain relief, socialise better, um, lose weight. Uh, They're generally the sort of pillars of musculoskeletal care when it's non-operative with physiotherapy, but adding the mental health aspect into it is going to be very important in the future. Do do you think that um, the part of that pre-operative workup to make sure that someone is ready to have a joint replacement in the future, you can see involving psychology and do you think that there is um, scope to provide that um, mental health um, support and training before an elective procedure? Yeah, I think we can do a lot of things better, Alex. We, whilst patients are waiting, there's this opportunity to really intervene in their overall health. And we know there's a concept called resilience. Um, when we look at joint replacement surgery, we know not all patients after joint replacement surgery reports they have good outcomes despite all parameters in terms of the surgical findings being good. They're not happy with their joint replacement. And certainly that's well documented, the um, relationship between resilience and also when they go and have surgery. So if you go and have surgery too early because you report significant pain, even though your X-rays and MRIs aren't that bad, if you end up having a joint replacement, you will not have a typically great score or outcome, we should say. So I think that's the new frontier, really. It's not only thinking about the mechanics of the joint replacement and how you rehab before and afterwards, but looking at the whole picture of that patient. Fong, this is absolutely fascinating to me as a GP and um, uh, my medical student days, orthopaedic surgeons were not renowned for their attention to psychological health and the whole patient. <laughs> so music to my ears. Uh, Dr. Son- Dr. Sonia was so gripped by this program, she stayed in the studio and she's itching to ask you a question. Dr. Sonia, far away. <laughs> yeah, I feel similarly, um, Dr. Nick. It's so wonderful and heartening to hear uh, focus on the quality of life and mental health impacts because that's such a huge proportion of what we see in general practice. Um, I've just had a question about, uh, we know that a lot of um, patients who are waiting on these lists with musculoskeletal pain have kind of issues with chronic pain. And something that I'm learning about as a GP registrar is understanding pain neuroscience and psychology and how all of those things interact to cause uh, problems with chronic pain. And we sometimes talk about the yellow flags of 
back pain and other types of pain, the psychological markers that will affect outcomes. I'm wondering if um, anything that you're looking into with the quality of life and the mental health impacts involves that chronic pain or kind of pain neuroscience model. Oh, absolutely. I mean, everything is has to be taken in a very much holistic framework. One of the amazing things about this collaboration with Victoria University is this is a true co-designed program with patients involved. And we've also in, made sure that from the very start, especially with the cold, the culturally and linguistically diverse population in the West, that we actually designed the program based on their needs. So we've had a, a separate arm that has been interviewing Vietnamese patients. So we can provide a program that is not just translated from English into Vietnamese, but co-designed with Vietnamese patients. And the feedback we've had from patients when you take this approach, looking at it more holistically, has just been absolutely tremendous. And we're hoping to reduce the waiting list because a lot of patients may not need to see surgeons um, and be able to have great care out in the community if we just give them a trustworthy source of information and a resource that can always um, look into. So, yeah, the, the overall picture, unfortunately, medicine, a lot of it is siloed. And I think there's a growing sort of recognition of this and making sure that we think about the patient as a whole rather than just a joint, for instance. Prof Ung, this is uh, misdiagnosis here. Yeah, absolutely fascinating stuff. I was particularly interested in what you're saying about developing programs that are not just translated directly into a language, but actually use the sort of cultural context of that particular group in order to communicate with them in a way that you know is designed by people of that group itself. At the moment, it, so it's just in Vietnamese at the population at the moment. Is that right? Is there scope to expand this yeah. to other populations? Oh, absolutely. We've had translation services and even the local councils involved. Um, so we've got multiple stakeholders and community groups involved. And certainly we chose Vietnamese uh, partly because of my background, but also because it's the largest cohort uh, in the West. But we do plan on making it available in multiple languages, but each step would be co-designed with that cultural group. So there's a text message that's come through which absolutely speaks to this and someone says uh, that they had two joint replacements in the 30s and was given advice for obese patients and the elderly. <laughs> Young people getting joint surgery are massively neglected psychologically and socially. I guess you'd be in furious agreement. Oh, absolutely. A lot of the, the, the sort of treatments we have these days are not tailored to patients. And I think having a more tailored approach. So in our program, we have modules and the patients get to choose the modules that best fit them and their needs. Do you think that um, the solution to this is to provide more operating theatres and more orthopaedic surgeons, Prof? <laughs> That's such a loaded question, of course. <laughs> um, unfortunately, the moment they uh, built the Footscray Hospital and had the plans, I already had said there's not enough theatres. That's, <laughs> that's just me from my siloed point of view. <laughs> um, more of everything, really. 
Um, I know that in the um, the UK we've been discussing a little bit about the um, NHS this morning that it has such a federally um, driven system where the non-operative arm of musculoskeletal health is very standardised across the whole country or across the whole of Great Britain. So people must um, adhere to uh, trying some weight loss, trying some physiotherapy, trying some psychological health and joint injections. And then when it comes to the point where they have um, met those criteria and questionnaires have been sort of um, the points suggests operative management, then any sort of surgeon in the public health system can do, a, for example, joint replacement for them. Do you think that we need to somehow standardise non-operative uh, musculoskeletal health um, so we get to that and so that would probably involve obviously the government but also educating GPs um, and um, people in our society that these are the steps you go through and then when you are at the end of this then you will most likely be offered an operation. Yeah, but I'd like to actually think it's much more in partnership with patients with the hospitals from the start by enrolling them into a program and then getting them to really make sure they optimise their health. So whether that's providing with, with dietary advice, um, recipes cooked by um, different people in their community that's been through a dietitian, monitoring their steps and giving them encouragement and maybe having little chat lines with trained physiotherapists to really make sure that they're still supported. I think one of the things about having community health care is that often patients report to, to us they feel lost, they feel lost in the big system. So I think we really need to innovate with um, online services, apps, all the digital devices we have. We can really make sure we contact patients. And one of the great things about COVID has been the advent of telehealth. It, it really is revolutionary. And without COVID, we wouldn't be so far advanced. And I think that forms part of the solution in the future. Do you think that we... Um that we need to provide a little bit more um, public psychological um, health care to our, to our patients? Because I know in the community, GPs can refer for um, uh, mental health plans, um, but the access to it is still quite expensive. Uh, so those who are in our community waiting two years um, upwards to see, even just to see an orthopaedic surgeon, that... Um, you know, these services are not available and that therefore, you know, they might be working on something um, physically, but really the the thing that will make them better and be able to access um, their community better is is psychological help? Oh, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, there's access to psychological help is very difficult. Uh, my wife is an arts therapist um, and I see the work that she does in the tremendous... Um, impact she has on her patients. I feel that there are so just so many services. And I think one of the problems is people don't know how to access services. Um, and having some... I suppose the role of the GP is to coordinate that, and they do it really well. But I have lots of G3 friends, and I, I know how hard it is for GPs these days with the current environment. 
I'd like I'd like to pick up what you what you said about that because um, it's certainly true that we can refer, as you say, Dr. Ban, for mental health plans and psychologists. But the waiting times are quite difficult. There's often a significant out-of-pocket cost, um, and we're flat chat trying to do that for people with overt mental health disorders. And I, I don't think many of us are tuned into the idea that someone, say, on a waiting list for orthopedic treatment, might be someone that we should be thinking about in that category. Um, uh, Professor, one of the things that we know is that when we refer to a public system for an orthopaedic opinion, um, one of the first ports of call before they even get to see the orthopod is a physiotherapist. Perhaps it should be a physiotherapist and a psychologist in that pre-screening clinic. That's right. I, I think with the, a number of patients we get referred to uh, per week, so we have 100 referrals per week, um, and there's no way that the team could actually catch up with that. We're always on a losing battle. So I think that's where we have to think innovatively of how we can um, quickly screen the patients and make sure they are having the appropriate treatment, um, whether it involves psychological help or physiotherapy or dietary help. There's just so many facets we can help them with, um, but it's just the sheer numbers and the need out there that is very problematic. And we know that this um, this issue affects not just the elective population that we've um, had to put on hold for the last two years. A recent um, journal, uh, the American Academy of Orthopaedic Surgeons, JOS, found that those that undergo uh, orthopaedic trauma, so fractures, um, um, large injuries from motor vehicle accidents or bike accidents, that when they go into the hospital, they, of course, are dealt with um, well surgically, but then they are left with a a mental health burden afterwards and if you don't deal with this early um, it can lead to issues of chronic pain opioid use and it really can affect their lives and so something as we think as simple as an ankle fracture can really affect someone's life for the next 20 years um, so I think that it's 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 interesting really interesting research that needs to be taken upon um, and really instituted practically um, amongst all orthopedic or musculoskeletal uh, patients Oh, I couldn't agree more, Alex. All the time waiting, um, and often we look at the statistics, but if you look at the person and when we interview and having this anecdote of the effect that it has on the patient, but also their carers and family. So, you know, we hear heartbreaking stories of people losing their jobs, having to not pursue their schooling just because their family members need care. And they're the kinds of um, patients we need to really try to find within the large number of patients who are being referred to us is to make sure we find those who are truly in need both on a physical basis but mental and social basis so we can prioritise them up on the list. And I think that's one of the main aims of this program is to implement a much better triaging system so we can really find those who are desperately in need because when we receive a GP referral, essentially everyone seems equally needy. It, it is very hard to decipher those who are in desperate need um, so they can be prioritised um, ahead of everyone else. Fong, it was just extraordinary to hear you say you get 100 referrals a week. Oh, my goodness, as a GP, we're always sort of tearing our hair out, saying, oh, why don't these hospitals get on and do something? And with my referral, my really, really important one, not knowing there are 99 others that you've had that week. That's terrifying. Oh, it's terrible, and you get letters um, written to the hospital asking to be prioritised. It's hard to prioritise those because there is a large group of people who are not um, 
literate or health or health literacy. So I actually write those letters to ask to be put forward. So you still almost feel ethically bound. It's very hard to make an ethical decision to know who is in more pain than others because there are those who are just sitting at home waiting patiently for their turn and it's hard to prioritise above those people, especially when they are from the cold community. Yes. Um, well, you've just, you've just given me a clue that if I write a second letter and really plead their case, you might be listening. Uh, <laughs> time is upon us. Dr Fong, I also heard you say that your partner is an art therapist, which I think is completely yeah. brilliant. Um, I love art therapy, and we talk a lot about psychologists on this show as if mental health is only provided by people with psychology degrees. And, of course, there are a whole stack of other people providing fantastic mental health care, art therapists being one of them. Maybe we'll get your wife on the show sometime in the near future. <laughs> but thank you. Thank you so much for your time this morning. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. That was Associate Professor Dr. Fong Tran. What a wonderful person, what wonderful work he's doing. Uh, we'll be back right after this. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Uh, there's a lovely text message, funny enough, just come to saying, wonderful conversation. Oh, it's from an arts therapist. <laughs> Isn't that fantastic? And uh, saying, so glad that Professor mentioned the value of arts therapy. Um, so, yes, couldn't agree with you more, our lovely Triple R texter. And um, I think we're going, to, we're going to look a little bit more at that whole world. Wait, what do you reckon this diagnosis? Because it does seem like it's, psychology is the only way to go sometimes. Oh, I'm 100% with you, Dr. Nick. I think there are so many different avenues. And I think that... I think it is about just knowing what is out there. It's not that anyone is inherently saying things are worth more or worth less. It's just if you've never heard of art therapy before, you've never heard of it. You know, there's music therapy, art therapy, social workers. I was doing some painting last night because art therapy, personal art therapy is one of the things that I do. I sit down with my paints and I find it very relaxing. So I'd love to have an art therapist on the show. I think that'd be great. Yeah, I think we'll definitely line that up for another time. Dr. Pan, what do you reckon? A bit of art therapy going with the orthopaedics? Oh, absolutely. I mean, surgeons are well known for... Um, drawing things out, drawing operations out oh, before nice. you yes. before you start them. And it's certainly therapeutic, especially if it can be um, can be uh, paired with a nice wine. And we talk a lot about the combination of art and science in medicine. So there we are. Now, just a reminder that Radiothon might be over, but there's still prizes to be won if you subscribe. So do please jump online, rrr.org.au. Dr. Norman Swan, the writer of Live Younger, Better, Longer, or whatever it was, said the best way to do that is subscribe to Triple R. And he couldn't have been more right. It's time to wrap up, so a huge thank you to our wonderful guests, Dr. Sonia Srinivasan. I'll get that right one day. Associate Professor Von Tran, and to the multi-talented Dr. Nick Team, misdiagnosis Dr. Ban, and a very special thank you to the legendary Tim Thorpe for keeping this whole show on the road. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Therapy's Facebook page. <laughs>